I'm really excited about class this morning. Uh, uh, I'm excited because I have a chance to teach something that, frankly, is really, really challenging for me to teach. Uh, I think what we have to talk about this morning is something that's so good that you're going to eat on it and you're going to say, wow, that tastes different than anything I've eaten in some time. And you're not really quite sure how digestible it is. But just chew on it a little bit longer and pretty soon you're going to really grow accustomed to it and really like it. Today we talk about St. Anselm of Canterbury. St. Anselm of Canterbury. Pretty interesting fellow, right? Well, you don't know. Let me tell you why I like St. Anselm of Canterbury and why I think we need to be looking at him. And this is kind of a review for you. Uh, it saves you uh, or in, inspires you to go back to the website and pull some lessons off if you miss them. During the first 100 years uh, of, of our era, since the birth of Christ, uh, those 100 years produced some incredible thinkers within the Christian church. And there are people that we read about in the Bible. I just listed a few of them. Paul. Incredible thinker in the church, the author of the book of Romans by the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, but a, a man of great intellect, a man of great vision, and, and uh, uh, Peter. What an incredible man. John, the Apostle John, who writes the, the, the uh, uh, Gospel of John, that if you haven't sat down and studied it uh, in depth, is... You, you, you will not be able to plumb the depths of the Gospel of John. It, it's on so many layers, so profound. Um, you go into the second century from 100 to 200, and you've got some other great Christian thinkers that we've talked about in this class. Ignatius, the early martyr who wrote this letters to the seven churches. You've got Marcion, who's not necessarily a Christian. I think he was a heretic. But uh, uh, still, his thought was so profound and, and what he tried to understand and address was Irenaeus, who wrote against Marcion and, and uh, uh, helped expose the heresies. Again, tremendous Christian thinkers in that second century. You go to the third century and we talked about Clement. We talked about Origen and, and his view of the Old Testament and how it's, we see the church in the Old Testament. We talked about Tertullian, the lawyer from North Africa who, who helped uh, uh, put some, some meat and bones to the church itself and, and really called the church back to its original mission. These were great thinkers that we studied. Um, we can go into the 4th century. In the 4th century... Arius, who again was a heretic, but certainly was at least a great thinker about the Christian faith. Athanasius, who, who contended against Arius and fought for the faith. Uh, Ambrose, and I'm leaving out names, John Chrysostom, the honey-mouthed preacher. Uh, uh, so many people that we have studied that, that profoundly affected Christianity and the church. It was a great century of, of Christian thinkers. We go into the 500s, and, and heavens, this is when, the, the, or into the 400s, the 5th century. Uh, Augustine, you know, maybe one of the most profound thinkers the church has ever produced, one of the most prolific writers, just an incredible guy. Jerome, the, the fellow who translated the Bible into Latin and, and, and did so much for the church. Boethius who we studied, that uh, uh, we all made fun of his name and the fact that he's been lost uh, in history to most people, but still one of the most 100 important thinkers, secular people will tell you, in our era. Um, uh, and then we go uh, into the 6th century, from 500 to 600. We studied Gregory, <clears throat> the great, 
that's eh, kind of about it. I mean, Muhammad, but he's not a Christian. Uh, you know, then um, we're kind of hitting the Middle Ages, aren't we? And we kind of had the sixth century, seventh century, that six to seven hundreds. And the great Christian thinkers, uh, well, we didn't have any. <laughs> I guess maybe Bede the Venerable wrote a history of the church in England. I left him out, but it really wasn't profound. Uh, uh, the 700s to the 800s, there was uh, Charlemagne, but he wasn't really a great Christian thinker. He was kind of a king, Charles the Great. He had a guy named Alcuin that we didn't study, who was his like uh, chief religious guru. But he really didn't think much that we know of. Uh, how about the 800s to the 900s? Well, there was St. Cyril. We didn't cover him. He was like a missionary to the Slovakian lands, but he wasn't a great Christian thinker, per se. Um, some people credit him with the Cyrillic alphabet, but he probably didn't author the Cyrillic alphabet. He just kind of spread it around because he was real good with languages. Um, so he wasn't really a great Christian thinker. Then we go from the 900s to the 1000s. And, and frankly, all of this is called the Dark Ages for a reason. We try to think of the great Christian thinkers during this time period, and that's about the best I could do. <sighs> ah. Anyway, we're waking back up. We're starting to get close to a renaissance of thought, a rebirth, a reawakening. And we see in Christianity a little bit of resurgence of thought with, St. Anselm of Canterbury, who lived from 1033 to 1109. I don't have a good picture of him. I don't have a good picture of him in contemplation. So I just stole Rodin's statue. We finally have a thinker that we can read about today that made some pro pro prolific advancements in Christian thought for the first time, really, since Boethius or, or Gregory the Great, maybe. Uh, uh, and that's who we have in Athanasius. Now, I mean in Anselm. I want to ask you some questions. I want you to raise your hands and give me some feedback here. I'm going to ask you some questions that Anselm asked. And these are profound questions to me. They're profound questions not only to me, but to me it's profound that after five centuries of yawning... There's a Christian who's asking questions in the middle of the Dark Ages that no one else seems to be asking much. And I'm curious, have you ever asked yourself these questions? How do we know God exists? Who's asked themselves that question? Okay, good. That's going to help when we get to that part of the lesson. <clears throat> Why did God become man? Why? Oh, you say, oh, to save the world. Yeah, but uh, why did Christ have to die instead of God saving the world another way? You ever ask yourself that question? Okay, some of you have. Um, why, why is sin such a bad thing? I mean, what is it that makes sin so bad? Why do we even have a word for it? Ever, anybody? Okay, these are questions Anselm's asking. Now, I want to 
tell you what Anselm had to say about, say about these, but before we do that, we got a couple of things we're going to cover. By the way, we're so ahead of time. We got out of church real early. We could like be at the Mongolian by <laughs> noon if we do this right. Um, <clears throat> insight into my mind. I didn't eat, uh, well, I ate too much, but <laughs> every day is a new adventure for my stomach. Um, I'd like to take a time out for a moment because as we've gone through, you see, there are different views of, of the church and, and we've got a little bit extra time, so we're going to fill in a little bit. One view of the church, uh, um, uh, I grew up in, in uh, the Church of Christ. Okay? And in the Church of Christ, there are lots of different people who believe lots of different things because each church is really autonomous in its own sense in a lot of ways. And there was a segment of people, and, and my Bible degree that I have is from a Church of Christ college slash seminary, if you will. Um, the, 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 there was a segment of people that taught church history within the Church of Christ in the following sense. The, the, the Church of Christ as we see it today is really God's vision for a New Testament church and has been in existence for 2,000 years since Pentecost. It's just not the church that you really read about in church history. And I always struggled with that because I would have said, well, why wasn't there any evidence of that church existing for 1,000 plus years? Because there's really not. And that's one view. There's another view that, that I believe some guys at, for example, Dallas Theological Seminary, where Chuck Swindoll lives, and some others, um, uh, uh, and some within the Church of Christ hold this view as well. Um, and, and it's a view, in all candor, that I hold. Um, and, and the view is this. God established His church on Pentecost, but God's church has always been not a structure and an organization as much as it has been the collective people who are saved. Okay, Now, if we want to look at the structure and organization that those people collectively worshipped in, then we'll be able to do it within various churches. For example, I think there is a collection of God's people that, that are part of the church of God, the church of Christ, God's body here at Champion Forest Baptist Church. I also believe that there are people who are in God's church at other churches that may have different names and even different denominational affiliations. Okay? Now, within the framework of the church being the people who trust Christ for their salvation and, and, and trying to understand which churches they may go to, historically, we see what today is considered the historical Catholic church as the framework where most, if not a lot, of those, or a lot, if not most of those people were for centuries. I think once we hit Luther, and here's the Protestant in me coming out, once we hit Luther, we see um, um, a great number of those people of faith going into what we now consider Reformation churches. But back in early church history, really what we have to study at this point in time is what is now called the Roman Catholic Church, what is now called the Eastern Orthodox Church, and what is now called the Coptic or the Egyptian Church. <clears throat> and that's where God's people met under the, the, the aegis of those organizations. And so I bring that up because 
I had an interesting conversation with John Michael Talbot last Sunday after class. And he says, yeah, he says, I'm really an old Catholic. And I said, what does that mean, an old Catholic? He says, well, he says, after the Reformation, a bunch of Catholics went off with Martin Luther. He says, I'm kind of one of the Catholics that, that was around before Martin Luther. He says, after Martin Luther, a lot of what the Catholic Church did, I'm just not really into that much. I thought, well, that's kind of unusual to hear a guy say something like that. He says, so I'm kind of the old Catholic. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And, and, and I've talked to some people this week in ways that makes me want to get into some of this because we've got a little extra time. And here is an example of where it comes in in our class. I'm teaching today on St. Anselm. Last week, we taught on St. Francis. I've taught about St. Jerome. We've taught about St. Augustine. What is this idea of a saint anyway? Because a saint viewed from a Roman Catholic understanding is different than what a saint is from a Protestant understanding. And so I think it's useful for us to stop for a moment and understand that difference. Um, from a Catholic perspective and a Protestant perspective, what do we have to say about the word saints? From a Catholic perspective, a saint, uh, 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 as viewed by the church today, is someone who has reached such a level of holiness that when that person dies, he doesn't or she doesn't serve time in purgatory. In essence, that person is ushered straight to the throne room of God and goes, in Protestant terms, straight to heaven. Because the Catholic Church has a concept of purgatory that most Protestants don't share. It's a concept that, that uh, uh, upon your death, unless you're a saint or unless you're going to hell, you go into purgatory where a time is spent kind of preparing you for heaven, you know, cleaning your soul up, if you will. Clean, St. Bonaventure says that the human soul is a mirror that reflects God's glory, but sin is dirt that's gotten on there. And while the sin is forgiven by the blood of Jesus, you still got to have someone clean the mirror off. And that's kind of, in a sense, what happens in purgatory. You, 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 so, so a saint in the Catholic understanding today is someone who doesn't really have any of that tarnish on there, none of that dirt, and they go straight to heaven. Now, that's different than a Protestant view of the word saint. The Protestant church is, while the Catholic church is, is a church that's built strongly not only on Scripture, but also on tradition and church tradition, the Protestant church is much more a, a Scripture-oriented church that, that, that almost shuns tradition in some ways. And so from a Protestant perspective... The word saint is used in the scriptural sense of the word. For example, when Paul writes to the Philippian church, he starts it out, and here's the way it begins. And this is a New American Standard Version is the way I memorized it, so I think I put New International Version in your handout, but NIV is in my brain. I mean, New American Standard is in my brain. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, we're doing the writing, to the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the elders and the deacons. See, he wrote the letter to the whole church. The whole church are the saints. Because the Greek word that's translated there, saint, that Paul uses, means someone who is holy or someone who is set apart. 
And the concept that the Protestants use with that word is any Christian is a saint. Any Christian is set apart for God. Okay? Now, I don't have any problem using the word saint with uh, 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 Saint Anselm. Uh, because from a Protestant perspective, he is a saint. From a Catholic perspective, he is a saint. Um, uh, so, so it doesn't uh, bother me, and it's also an appropriate label and a deferential label. Now, the Catholic Church will also tell you, and, and I should add this, um, November 1st, anybody, any Catholics remember what November 1st is? All Saints Day. Do you know why? Y'all don't mind. This is church history, right? I can divert a little bit from the lesson here. Okay. Catholics will typically um, offer prayers or speak to, if you will, um, saints. Okay. Now, why? See, to a Protestant, that's almost like idolatry. Okay. It, it, the hairs on the back of our head stand up and we start thinking, Ooh. Okay. Yet, I will tell you this, I have no qualms calling Louis Miori and saying, would you pray for me? I have no qualms doing that. There's not a thing in my life I wouldn't ask him to pray for. Okay, he's, he's, we're very close and, and transparent with each other. And there are times where I've needed and, and really earnestly desired his prayer. And you might say, well, why, Mark? Why don't you just pray yourself? It's because there's something in other people interceding on God for my behalf. I don't understand it, but I can sense the difference and I can read the difference in Scripture. Okay? In a Catholic mindset, from Catholic theology, when saints die, they're not asleep until a coming judgment. When saints die they still have a conscious awareness and are, in fact, in the presence of God. So in a Catholic mentality, there's no difference between asking them to pray for you once they're dead than asking them to pray for you when they're alive. Okay? So on All Saints Day, November 1st, it's a day where the Catholic Church honors, if you will, all of the saints who have died not just the ones that we have canonized by the Catholic Church with an appropriate name and title. Because there are, in the Catholic perspective, many people who are saints who get that straight ticket to paradise, if you will, without purgatory, that, that go nameless within the canons of the Catholic Church. And so those people are honored on All Saints Day. November 2nd, what's it? All Souls Day. And that's where the rest of us get honored, too. <laughs> All the other dead people that are just going to do some time in purgatory. Uh, but uh, 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 that's, that's the difference, if you will, between these words in the way it's been used. Does that make sense? Okay, so with that, let's talk about St. Anselm of Canterbury. A saint to the Catholic tradition, but also within my framework as well. Um, let me tell you a little bit about him before we get into the questions that he asked and the answers that he gave to those questions. Um, as a boy, he was born in the north... Let's see, it's that part. That's northwest? Yeah, it's like the Seattle area of uh, Italy. Okay, The northwest corner of Italy, up uh, uh, where it's real close to France. And uh, he was born in a pretty well-to-do family. 
Um, his mother was a wonderful Christian lady. She loved him. She taught him to love God. Uh, mothers have a very profound effect uh, upon their children. And uh, uh, as I'll testify with my mom who taught us the same, and you mothers out there, regardless of your age, you children who will grow up to be mothers, you have a very huge effect upon your children, and this mother did. She taught him to love, respect, and honor God. When Anselm was a little boy, he had a dream. And, in, in, and his mom had taught him that heaven is up above. And the only way he could understand that is she would point at the mountains because they're at the foot of the Alps up where he was born. And she'd say, well, heaven's like that. So one night, Anselm, as a young boy, dreams that he goes up to the mountaintop and he sees God in heaven. And no one else is around. It's just him and God. And God calls one of his, like uh, his cupbearer, like uh, the equivalent of a waiter, like a head waiter, okay? Calls his cupbearer and says, bring the boy some bread. And so Anselm sits there with God, eats the bread that God has brought to him, and God just has this wonderful little conversation with him. So tell me about you. Tell me about your family. And, and you know, how are you? And, and, and Anselm woke up the next morning and was convinced throughout his life that he truly had had an experience with God where God had shown interest in him the same interest God has in every human being. And God had fed him the same way God wants to feed every human being. Profoundly affected the direction Anselm went with his life. Um, as a teenager, Anselm's mother died uh, when he was uh, still fairly young. And so he spent a lot of time at that point, of course, with his father. His father was um, very harsh, very anger-driven, had a hair temper, and uh, it was very, very difficult for Anselm in his teenage years growing up. At 15, Anselm decided, I want to join a monastery. You know, I've been called by God. I just need to get away from Dad. The abbot at the monastery would not accept Anselm because the abbot was too afraid of Anselm's father. His father's name was like Gundolf or something. I'm thinking it was just close enough to Gandalf the wizard. that, But it was Gundolf. And uh, the abbot was scared of it. Wouldn't let the boy in. So um, um, Anselm kind of starts wandering around, if you will. And he doesn't really take life too seriously. In his 20s, he reaches a point where life with his father is just too hard to bear. And we don't know what happened, but his father exploded somehow and Anselm, in essence, ran away. And he crossed the Alps and he went into what is now France and he wandered around for a while until he finally came to an abbey, a monastery at Bec, B-E-C. Bec is in Normandy, France. Any World War II buffs here? Few. Normandy invasion? That tells you where it is. If we throw up a map of Europe, um, this is where Anselm is from, up here in this northwestern part of Italy near France. Beck, the abbey, is right up here in Normandy. And that's how he went. Uh, he went by foot, too. The trains weren't working at the time. He made it up there and um, uh, got accepted in that abbey at about the age, I think, of 27. 
and he spent uh, uh, his time there. Um, Let's tie this in with history for a minute because it's actually useful. If you ever studied British civilization, you'll remember there was the Norman Conquest where William the Conqueror came over and conquered England. Um, the Norman Conquest, you'll never guess what part of Europe their Normans were from. Norman D. Okay? So William the Conqueror during this time period, goes from Normandy over and conquers London, which is where I've got the highlighter now, and a good bit of England. And when he does, do you know who he sets up to be the, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is where the seat of the church is in England at the time? He brings the old guy who's head of the Beck Monastery up there and gives to the Beck Monastery some key lands and possessions to hold over there in England. Um, uh, over time, that uh, uh, Lefranc was the name of, of the, the monastery head at Beck who goes up to Canterbury. Um, uh, uh, Anselm becomes the head of the monastery at Beck. And then Anselm ultimately follows in the footsteps and heads over and becomes the Archbishop, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Let's see, there's Canterbury. Um, and uh, uh, Canterbury is uh, right there, down at the southeastern tip of England. So that's who Anselm becomes, and that's where he is. Now, he struggles there because uh, the king wants him to do some things. It's not William II at this point. It's his son and then his grandson um, uh, want Anselm to do some things that Anselm views uh, irresponsible for the church. Basically, would you swear allegiance to the king over Jesus? And Anselm says, no. And so he kind of gets exiled, and then he gets brought back, and then he gets exiled, and he gets brought back. And he eventually dies there at Canterbury. Now, that's his life story. I'll ask you this question. Um, why should we study Anselm? All right? That's your hint. Anybody want to guess? Because of what he wrote. Okay. Um, he wrote a number of books. We're going to look at two of them today. The Discourse on the existence of God, proslogion in the Greek. The discourse on the existence of God. He wrote, uh, that's, that's a long phrase for you young kids in here, discourse on the existence of God means I'm going to write a paper or a book on God and why he exists and how he exists and who he is. You know, it's like your English teacher telling you, okay, go home, write a paper on God says, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. So he writes a discourse on the existence of God. Then he writes another book, um, Cur Deus Homo in Latin. It means why God became man. And these are the two things we're going to talk about. And the, the first one is the hardest one. Um, Bob's, Dr. Bob tells me that in, in every trial, no matter how difficult a subject matter I have to convince a jury of, I should always tell them this is very simple and easy to understand. And then you just proceed to do it because if they are told it's simple and understand, they'll listen. If you tell them it's hard, they'll decide, eh, I can't follow that anyway and they won't try. Okay? So this is... But you see, here's the problem. I'm in church and I've got to be honest. Not saying I don't have to be honest in the courtroom, but... There's a, there's a higher level of understanding of honesty here at church. So, uh, 
I would love to tell you that this is going to be simple and easy to understand. This is really hard. Okay? But don't be discouraged. Pretend this is simple and easy to understand as we hit point number one. Now, I got to tell you how Anselm does this because he gets a bad rap from some people. Some people get upset because when they read what Anselm writes about the existence of God, he doesn't put any scripture in there. He just gives this logical argument, okay, in in Latin, sola um, ratione, ratione, I guess would be the right way to pronounce it. It's it's only logic that he's going to use. He's not going to look to scripture. And you think, well, gee, what's he afraid of? Why doesn't he like scripture? Is this, oh, this is a... One of those classic people that don't want to look at the Scripture. No. Here's what he says if you read him. He says, Scripture is absolute truth. All right? Scripture is absolutely true. Every dot, every line across the T, every principle, everything that Scripture says is true. He says, that's how I'm a Christian. That's how I know what I believe. It's because Scripture says it and it's true. He says, but if Scripture says it and it's true, then we can use logic, only reasoning, to arrive at the same conclusions of Scripture. In other words, if Scripture's true, then why don't we just use our logic and show that logically we can get the same results we get simply by reading Scripture. And that's what he tries to do. In the process, he makes it clear. He says, if I say something in this that unquestionably contradicts sacred scripture, then I'm certain what I'm saying is wrong. Scripture is the measuring rod. I can't say something opposite of scripture, but I so believe that scripture is true that I think logically I can prove the things that are also provable by scripture. Does that make sense? That's his method and that's his approach on proving the existence of God. So, he says, okay, we ought to all take a deep breath. I mean, just sort of figuratively stand up, exhale, ah, stretch, pop your neck, fasten your seatbelt, put up your tray table because we're about to take off. Here it is. He says, by the way, as we're doing this, because he wants to incite you to do it, he wants you to study this. He wasn't writing this just for, he wasn't writing this for the atheist. He says, I'm not writing this book for the atheist to prove God exists. They're not going to read it. I'm writing this for the Christians. He says, I hold it to be a failure in duty as a Christian. If after we become steadfast in our faith, we do not strive to understand what we believe. Okay, that in itself is a mouthful. I've got to tell you, I send my lesson out to these people to, to look at. John Michael Talbot reviews my lesson each week and throws in this or that, and a number of people do. Jeff Shreve sends me back an email last night. He says, I've used an Anselm quote in a sermon. Those of you who know Jeff will appreciate this. And he reproduces it. And it's the biggest, longest gobbledygook in the world. And he says, I used it to show that a lot of people say things that don't make any sense. <laughs> That was him kind of telling me, tread lightly, Mark, you know, in his funny way. Um, Got to chew on this for a minute, and then I'm going to put this into Lanier speak. But first, chew on it. 
I hold it to be a failure of duty, a failure in duty. You have a duty as a Christian. You have failed in your duty. If after you believe and you're steadfast and you're firm in your faith, if after you have firm faith, you don't work hard to try and understand what it is you actually do believe. If you just blindly accept it and never try to figure out why you believe what you believe, then you're failing in your duty. Here it is in Lanier speak. Christians ought to study to understand why they believe. It's not... Christians should never be satisfied. God didn't give us a mind to fail to use it. We don't take our mind off and put it on the hat rack when we walk into church. Church never needs to be just something we do on Sunday morning. The people who study the Bible, the the people going to precepts, the people going to Bible study fellowship, the people in the men's fellowship groups, the people who are reading the books, the people who who are chewing on it, who are talking with their friends about it at work, who are talking to their neighbors about it, who are talking at the dinner table about it. I don't care how you do it, but as Christians, there is something to be said about our duty to understand what we believe and why we believe it. I believe that. Okay, now I'm going to try and explain to you how Anselm wrote that we can believe that God exists. This is one of his proofs that God exists. That woman there is a painter. That's the paint you see in front of her. Okay? And here's what she's thinking. We're going to get into her brain. I'm envisioning in my brain the Mona Lisa. I think I'm going to paint her. Okay, are you with me? That's what she's thinking. So if she's thinking about the Mona Lisa, she's got a picture of the Mona Lisa. Do you have a picture of the Mona Lisa in your brain? Everybody? Everybody knows the Mona Lisa, right? You got a picture of the Mona Lisa in your brain. So is that real? Is there a real picture of the Mona Lisa in your brain? Well, yeah, I mean, you've really got... Well, let me ask you this. Do you really have an understanding in your brain of the Mona Lisa? Yes. You've got some picture image. Oh, it may not be perfect in all of its details... You may not remember what color her eyes are. You may not remember exactly if she has a collar under that dress. But you've got a general picture of the Mona Lisa in your brain that's real, don't you? You can conceive of the Mona Lisa. She thinks of the Mona Lisa. So she understands or perceives the Mona Lisa. You with me so far? That's step one. Okay. Then she actually paints her. She paints the Mona Lisa. And the Mona Lisa... I should apologize to Leonardo da Vinci here because obviously he painted her first. Um, But she paints the Mona Lisa. And now the Mona Lisa is actually physically there. Before it was in her brain. Now it's physically there. And so the question Anselm asks is, what's greater? This inner vision of the Mona Lisa or the actual painting? The inner vision's good. You had a picture of it, but which picture's better? The one that was in your brain or that one? Which one's tr- greater, better than Mona Lisa? Which one? All right, the painting. Okay? He says, all right, that's your warm-up to help understand this. So now we're going to understand and we're going to apply this to the existence of God. He says, I want us to define God as the greatest thing anyone can imagine. Okay? God is that 
of which you cannot think of anything greater. Okay, we, we do this with our kids. Um, with Rebecca, she'll say, I, um, I'll say, I love you. And she'll say, I love you more. I'll say, well, I love you most. And she'll say, I love you more than that. Then I'll say, well, I love you more than the more than the most. And she'll say, Dad, I love you more than any amount that anyone can ever love anybody. And I'll say, yeah, and I love you more than that. That's impossible. Because <laughs> I just said, I love you more than anybody can love anybody. I said, yeah, and I just said I love you more than that. That's impossible. I said, well, then I love you an impossible amount. I trumped the nine-year-old here, man. <laughs> Took me 46 years to do it. Trust me, by the time she's 16, I'll have no chance. But right now, I can, I can, I can handle this. So, so God is the greatest thing you can possibly imagine. You cannot imagine anything greater than God. That's how he wants to define God. That's what God is. God is that which you can't conceive of anything greater. Okay? That's his premise. Then he says, everybody. And he quotes Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart there's no God, but everybody, everybody can think of a being that's the greatest thing in the world. Whether you acknowledge he exists or not, you can at least conceive of it like a painter would conceive of the Mona Lisa, right? You can take an unbeliever and say to the unbeliever, okay, just imagine the greatest creature, the, the greatest being, that of which there could be nothing greater in the world, or even in the imagination. Imagine that. And even the non-believer would have to say, okay, I can imagine that. Anybody can imagine that, right? Okay, you're almost there. He says, now, you know, the wild thing is, some believe that God really exists. Some believe, not just, okay, I'm going to think of a God that's greater than anything that there is. Some go a step further and think that God actually exists. He says, so, is a God that you can think that's greater than anything in the world truly the greatest thing in the world? Or what about when you compare the atheist who thinks of a God that there could be nothing greater? This is the greatest thing that could ever exist. Nothing greater. Wouldn't you have to agree that if you believe that not only is there such an idea, but that that idea actually exists, a God like that that exists would be greater than just a God like that that's in your imagination. The people who believe that God really exists, these people down here are thinking of something greater than these people who don't. The folks, the unbelievers, who think that they can think of a God of, of which there could be no greater thought in the world, have to bow down and say, we're wrong. Our position is not logically consistent. We cannot claim to be logical, thoughtful people because we have to admit that when we think we're thinking of the greatest thing that could ever exist, that someone else who believes that thing really does exist has automatically thought of something greater than we do. So they must be right and there must be a God. 
That's his reasoning. It's called the ontological argument by Immanuel Kant 600 years later. Um, now, I was going to do it one more time because I'm not sure that, that you follow it. I'm not sure I follow it. But I'm not going to do it one more time, and I'm going to tell you why. We're running out of time, and I want to get to the next point. So here's my suggestion to you. If you're still in doubt on what he's talking about, go eat lunch <laughs> and talk about it over lunch. Read it. Order a book on the guy or not. We'll approach other things later. But if you want to chew on it, chew on it. It's really interesting. Um, a lot of folks disagree with it. I don't really think that his logic makes that much. I don't think it ultimately holds water. I have some problems with his logic. But it's still really interesting to think about. And, and I have other reasons to believe in God exists. But I respect the man for what he was doing. And, and I may be wrong. He may be right. I mean, maybe that is a logical reason. My logic's not that great. But I do know 2 plus 2 is 6, so I'm okay. Now, why study Anselm? I said there were two books that I wanted to talk about. The discourse on the existence of God we've just done. The other one, why did God become a man? Why did Jesus Christ die for our sins? Why didn't God do it another way? Why didn't God send an angel instead of his own son? Or a really good guy or gal? Why did God himself do it? Why did he have to die? Why didn't he just come down and say, okay, I'm God, believe in me, and poof, you're fine. Now, some theologians, some Christians for the last five, six, seven hundred years in the, the Catholic Church had been teaching, not all, but some had been teaching, Jesus had to die to pay off Satan. Satan owned our souls. And I've heard this even in contemporary circles in my lifetime. Oh, I heard the story about the bird cage and Satan owned the birds. And I don't remember the whole story, but you know, Jesus ultimately had to die to buy our souls back from Satan. Wrong. Wrong. And Anselm said that's wrong. God didn't owe Satan for our souls. The reason Jesus had to die wasn't because Satan demanded it. Jesus' death defeated Satan. He broke down the gates of hell. He wasn't invited in. Jesus overpowers Satan. God has never owed Satan a penny. Jesus died because of God and God's justice. He says, now I'm going to write this for two reasons. I told you the last one he wrote so that Christians would know why they believe. This one he says the same thing. Believers should delight in understanding doctrine. It should just make you tingle down your spine when you understand why things are the way they are with God. And he says, we also need to be ready to give a satisfactory answer. He quotes 1 Peter 2.15 to anyone who asks why we live with such a hope. We, he says, because a lot of people make fun of the fact that we have a Jesus who had to die. Gee, God must not be very good if he can't come up with a better way. Okay? He says, so, could God have redeemed man another way? No. And he breaks it out in three different areas. He says, first of all, understand what sin is. Second of all, understand God's justice. And third, vicarious satisfaction. Big words. We'll break it down. Sin. 
He says, sin is the problem. We got to do something with sin because people have sin. Even good people have sin. Lewis, he's a good guy. He's like a really bad sinner. I told you, we're close. Sin, here's, here's the way, here's the way um, Anselm puts it. Sin is the failure of a human being to give to the infinite God what is his, what God is due. God's due all glory. You don't give him all glory, you've ripped God off. You're made to serve God. You don't serve God perfectly. You have ripped him off. And you've got an infinite God you're ripping off. You didn't just rip him off today. You've ripped him off. Your denial of his glory is for time eternity. You've ripped off an infinite God an infinite amount. Basically, you've stolen from God. That's the way he put it. Luther's going to come along and modify this significantly. Not saying that it's not true, but saying that there's more to the story than just this. Luther read Anselm, quotes him extensively. So we'll get, we'll get to that later. But right now, just the Anselm picture. He says, when you sin against God, you're ripping him off. You're taking what's his. You're ripping off his glory. You're ripping off your service. You're ripping him off. You're stealing from God. And, and God requires justice. He's an infinite God. God does, this is this word that Anselm keeps using over and over. He does what is fitting. It just makes, it's, it's what's right. It's justice. It's consistent. You know, so for example, death came through a man, Adam. Life comes through a man, Jesus. Anselm said, sin came from the woman first. She ate the apple first. It's y'all's fault. Remember? He says, isn't it fitting that our new life would also be born of a woman? He says, the devil got us where we are by getting us to taste from a tree. Isn't it fitting that Satan would be conquered by a man hanging from a tree? He says, God just is fitting. God's just. This is God's justice. And so you have stolen from an infinite God who has infinite justice. And an infinite penalty must be paid. Infinite stealing demands infinite justice. And that's what a vicarious satisfaction is, he says. He says, God pays an infinite price. You've got to pay an infinite price. No one else is infinite. Angels aren't infinite. They're not God. No human being's infinite in and of themselves. No, nobody can pay an infinite price for this infinite crime and the infinite justice except God, who is infinite. But by the same token, if it's going to be fitting for man's atonement, a man's got to pay the price. He says that's the requirement. He says, so you've got to have an infinite God pay the infinite price for the infinite stealing and the infinite justice. But you've got to have a man do it. So God, as man in Jesus, offers a sinless life in a voluntary sacrifice. And that has, he says, infinite merit. 
an infinite meritorious deed that satisfies infinite justice for any who believe. That's why it could be done no other way. That's who God is. And that's what sin is, he says. Our point's for home. Our faith is reasonable. I do believe in the Bible and Scripture and truth. And I do believe that we can use logic to derive scriptural truths. But I will add something Anselm's a few hundred years shy of understanding. And that is that the mind of sinful man is death. And our reasoning isn't always what it should be. God is renewing our minds, Romans 12.1 tells us. See, we don't think totally clearly. You know, we have trouble thinking about sin. Well, we don't have trouble thinking about it if it's someone else doing it. We're quick to recognize it and see it then. But if it's internal, our heart gets involved and we start fuzzing details. See, the mind just doesn't work all that. So we need to be careful because our reasoning is not infallible like Scripture is. But that doesn't deny the fact that we have a reasonable faith. We just may not be able to always get at the reasonableness of it. Does that make sense? Second point for home. Jesus is our atonement. John said it this way. In this love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. In this love. His love for us. He sent His Son to be the propitiation. That's a big word. It means the infinite payment that infinite justice demands for an infinite sin. He satisfies the justice of God. And there is nothing else that does. There could be nothing else but the infinite crime we commit in our sin. Would you pray with me? Our God, we're most thankful to you for the price that you have paid. I confess that I am the chief of sinners. And I think everyone in this room would say the same about themselves because we all know how short we fall of your glory. We have sinned against you in infinite ways. We have robbed you of your infinite glory by the way we live, the things we say, and the things we do. And we confess ourselves as sinners, but Lord, in the same breath, we rejoice in the blood of Jesus Christ that you and your love sent infinite payment for our infinite sin and that you will hold us now eternally through infinity. By the blood of Jesus, we pray. Amen.